Then Jesus said to them, Give therefore to the emperor the things that are the emperor's and to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they were amazed and they left him and went away. Please pray with me. Dear God in heaven, we ask you to be here in this place with us this morning and we trust that you have kept your promise and are here. May my words now be your words and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We pray this in your Son, our Savior, Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. There's an old story, although probably not actually a true story, about an ancient slave auction at which a wealthy man purchased a young slave girl. And as they walked away from the auction, the man turned to the girl and told her, you're free. And with amazement, she responded, you mean I'm free to do whatever I want? Yes, he said. And to say whatever I want to say? Yes, anything. And to be whatever I want to be? Yes. And even go wherever I want to go? Yes, the man answered with a smile. You're free to go wherever you'd like. She looked at him intently and replied, Then I will go with you. Now, when Jesus is challenged in Matthew 22 about whether or not it is lawful to pay taxes, he gives an answer that is much larger than the question he is asked. And that's what he's been doing for this whole set of interactions in the temple, isn't it? These last few weeks in Matthew 21 and 22, he's been telling parables in the temple during the last week of his life. The parable of the 11th hour workers, two brothers, wicked tenants in a vineyard, a wedding feast. These parables tell both the gathered crowd what's happening right then, right? That the Jewish people are in the process of rejecting their Messiah, but he's also telling them over and over again a bigger story about God's grace and mercy for the whole world. And Jesus is doing the same thing now. Ask him a question about taxes, get an answer about your relationship to Almighty God. A relationship depicted, I think, quite beautifully by that apocryphal story about the slave girl and the master who sets her free. Like that master, God has bought you with a price, the shed blood of Jesus Christ. But now in Christ, he has set you, like the slave girl, free. And now in response, you joyfully follow him. And to preach this message, this good news, Jesus is going to use a coin. Now, Back in Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells a set of three parables about lost things that are found. Now, the most famous of these stories is the parable of the prodigal son. But preceding that story are two shorter stories, one about a lost sheep and another about a lost coin. Here's what Jesus says about the coin. What woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, 
For I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. A simple story with a simple point. God will go to great effort and trouble to seek you out and redeem you. Even the trouble of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, sinless God in human form on earth. And the trouble of a criminal's cross outside the city walls. Those are the lengths to which God will go and has gone for you. But I want to call your attention to the illustration that Jesus is using here, this coin. Of course, Jesus could theoretically have had the woman lose and search for just about anything, right? What woman having 10 rubber bands if she loses one? But no, the thing has to be of value, right? Because it represents you, created in the image of God. You are of great value to him. So he goes to these great lengths to find you, to seek you out, to rescue you. And so in the story, he illustrates you with a silver coin. And now here in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is again handed a coin. And again, he's going to say that it represents you. So a group of people made up of the disciples of the Pharisees and a pro-Roman group called the Herodians, just supporters of Herod, come to Jesus and try to entrap him. Remember, we're in Holy Week here, the last week of Jesus' life. Things are reaching a climax. People are really now trying in earnest to make this Jesus problem go away. And probably remembering the way that Jesus trapped them with a trick question about the source of John the Baptist's authority, these disciples of the Pharisees decide to try the same thing. They're going to return the favor here, turn the tables on Jesus, and trick him with a sneaky question of their own. Teacher, they come to him and say, and I love this, you can, you can hear the sort of disgusting, oily dishonesty dripping off their words, can't you? Oh, teacher, we know that you are sincere and teach the way of God in accordance with truth. They believe none of this, by the way. Show deference to no one. You do not regard people with partiality. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? And so with this question, they've attempted to put Jesus between a rock and a hard place, just like he successfully did to them. If he says that people should pay taxes to the emperor, who, remember, is the head of a hated, oppressive, occupying force, he'll lose a lot of, if not all, of his popularity with the crowds. They hate the Romans. But if he says that the people shouldn't pay taxes the disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians can have him arrested for encouraging lawlessness. Of course, the ironic thing about this is that despite the grossly disingenuous way in which his adversaries compliment Jesus, oh, great teacher, the things they say about him are actually true. He is a teacher. He is sincere. He does teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. He doesn't show deference to anyone and does not regard people with partiality. And therefore, his answer to this dishonest question is honest and fair 
and truthful and totally not what they expect. Jesus, aware of their malice, writes Matthew, said, Why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Then he said to them, Whose head is this and whose title? They answered, The emperor's. Then he said to them, Give therefore to the emperor the things that are the emperor's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard this, they were amazed, and they left him and went away. Give therefore to the emperor the things that are the emperor's, and to God the things that are God's. This is, without a doubt, one of Jesus' most famous sayings, well known even to people who don't know anything about him or the Bible. Render unto Caesar is how the King James puts it. But what is Jesus really saying here? We know that Jesus is a teacher who sincerely teaches the way of God in accordance with the truth. He doesn't show deference to anyone or regard anyone with partiality. So what is his teaching here? Well, he's saying that, yes, taxes, this coin, should go to Caesar. But that's not the half of it. You, the you that is holding the coin, you and your whole self must go to God because you are God's. The coin might be the emperor's, but you belong to Almighty God. Whose head is this, Jesus says, and whose title? Now, a denarius, the standard coin paid for a day's labor, would have had the picture of the head of the emperor on it, as well as a couple of words describing his title, something like son of the divine Caesar. So we have an image, and we have writing, and Jesus' announcement. Give, therefore, to the emperor things that are the emperor's, and to God the things that are God's. Jesus is using this coin, just like he did in Luke chapter 15, to make a point about people. And not just the people there on the day gathered in the temple. All people, including me, including you. This is a story about you. The coin has an image on it and writing. Guess what Jesus is saying? So do you. This coin has an owner. So do you. Whose head is this? He asks. Whose image is on this coin? Well, the emperor's, Caesar's. Okay, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But give to God. What is God's? And how do you know what is God's? Well, just like this coin, it is what bears God's image. You. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Whose image is on you? Almighty God's. So you are God's. And you should give to God what is God's. 
Whose title is this? Asks Jesus, seeing the etching on the coin. By whose authority is there writing on this coin? Well, the emperor's, Caesar's. Okay, then, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But give to God what is God's. And how do you know what is God's? Well, just like the coin, it's whatever has God's writing on it. You. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. They shall not teach each other, one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. That's Hebrews chapter 8, verses 10 and 11, quoting Jeremiah 31. Whose writing is on you? Almighty God's. So you are God's. And you should give to God what is God's. Do you hear the profundity of what Jesus is saying here? The coin goes to Caesar. His image and writing are on it. It belongs to him. He gets this tiny bit of metal. You, though, you belong to God. Heart and soul and mind and strength, every atom, every fiber of your being, you are God's. And give to God what is his. Now we can see the bigness, the size of the answer that Jesus gives here. He's doing so much more than making a suggestion about whether or not people should pay their taxes. He's taking the opportunity provided by the question to tell people that they are not their own. That they might owe an insignificant metal coin to Caesar, and they do owe it, and they should pay it, but they owe their very existence, body and soul, to God. No wonder Jesus' questioners were amazed and afraid to ask him any more questions. Okay, where do we go from here? Give to God what is God's, and we are God's. I want to be careful about the apostrophe in that sentence. We are God's, apostrophe S. The prophet Isaiah puts this in words from God's mouth in chapter 43. Thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not. I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, You shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. So we are gods, and we are to give ourselves to God. But just how do we go about doing that? Well, in one sense, it's very simple. We acknowledge his ownership. We submit ourselves to his word. We are obedient to his command. Like the slave girl after that auction, even set free, she goes with her owner. I get it. The idea of being owned is a little disconcerting. It's worth us reminding ourselves then 
just what kind of owner we have. We are not our own. We are God's. But this is not a cruel or frightening owner. God is good. He is a redeemer. He is a forgiver. He has sent his son to earth to save us from bondage to sin and death. Here's how St. Paul puts it, writing to the Corinthian church. This is in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, actually in the context of sexual purity. You are not your own, Paul writes, for you were bought with a price. Jesus purchased you by his blood. Remember Isaiah 43, fear not, I have redeemed you. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. The flame shall not consume you. Even the things that would lead to death itself are not the end of you. Because our God is a God of resurrection. Bringing new life and righteousness out of sin and death. This is the God who calls you his own. And because this is the kind of God who owns you. Being owned by this God is actually freedom. It is for freedom, after all, that Christ says he has set you free. So there is a double dose of good news here. You are free, and you are Christ's. You are the slave girl in that apocryphal story about that ancient slave auction. You have been purchased and set free. And now you know that there is no better place to be than at the side of your master. He has called you by name. You are his. His ownership is freedom. His love is redemption. His sacrifice of himself and his son is forgiveness. It is his setting us free that actually brings us back and binds us to him. And so we find ourselves returning to his embrace week by week, hour by hour, day by day. We become conformed to Christ, one with him. We are obedient to our owner. We want, we desire to stay as close as possible. We say again and again, I will go with you. We're saying it right now. That's what we have come together this morning to say. We sing his praises. We eat and drink his body and blood. We reaffirm our faith in the creed. We share our joy in his salvation to the ends of the earth. Almighty God, creator of all things, Light and dark, sea and land, has looked at you, even you, called you by name, and said you are his. He has called you his own. On account of Jesus Christ, he has set you free. And on account of Jesus Christ, you are his and always will be. Amen.